As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. Every now and again, I reach out to an author who's touched my heart, whom I've never met, which is rare for my guests. Usually I've met my guests or have been interested in them for a very long time. This was not the case. I was sent the book, We Are the Light by Matthew Quick. I was like, oh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I started looking at it. It hung around my bedside for a few days. And one day I was just like, you know, I'm just going to pick this up and see how it's going. A trusted friend sent it to me, Wendy. And I picked it up, did not put it down for the subsequent 72 hours. I didn't cook meals. I had everybody do everything for me because this book was so engrossing and enriching in so many unexpected ways. Matthew Quick is our guest today. He's a New York Times bestselling author of the Silver Linings Playbook, which was made into an Oscar-winning film called The Good Luck of Right Now. Uh, Oscar-winning film, pardon me, called The Silver Linings Playbook. He's also the author of The Good Luck of Right Now, Love May Fail, The Reason You're Alive, and four young adult novels. His work has been translated into more than 30 languages. He has received a Hemingway Award Honorable Mention, which is no small thing. He was a Los Angeles Times Book Prize finalist, a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Come on, dude. Come on. He lives with his wife, the novelist Alicia Bissett on North Carolina's Outer Banks. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, my God. I look at your picture, first of all, and I feel like I'm looking at my long-lost high school buddy. <laughs> I don't Literally, know why that is. Literally. You, you're basically the conglomeration of a few of my very favorite high school friends uh, and maybe one of my Cornell buddies. It's unbelievable. You feel incredibly familiar to me. But let's get to talking about this book. First of all, do you have any other books in the works right now? I do. I'm working on something now, but mm. um, I'm kind of keeping that under wraps. Yeah, yeah, as we do. We are the light. I really want to talk about this. If you're listening to us, our dear listener, you need to get this book. We are the light. It is a, as Mitch Albom says, who you know, we respect greatly, a timely, lovely, sometimes heartbreaking novel of grief and hope, beautifully told through a series of letters that shine light on our capacity to heal even after tragedy. Okay. The letters. This entire book is a series of letters that our protagonist writes to his analyst. Okay? Yes. This series of letters is from somebody who has survived a mass shooting. He's writing to his analyst. Okay? Keep this in mind, our listener. I'm talking to you. 
This is honestly one of the most important books I've read in a really long time. The analyst, let's say, does not respond. Let's just say that. Okay. And our protagonist writes this series of letters to the analyst over the course of, I don't know, I think it's a couple of years, correct? Yes. Okay. Then the letters are talking about our protagonist who has survived a mass shooting. Our protagonist is writing to his analyst about meeting a very particular person who walks into his life. And this particular person happens to be the little brother of our shooter. The book follows what our protagonist does about this presence in his life. And it is one of the most touching tales of human generosity, of heartbreak, of fantasy, of heroism, and of these tiny injections of reality into fantasy and fantasy into reality. That's how I see it. Riveting, needless to say, if you haven't caught that already, our listener. Matthew, where on earth did this come from? <laughs> well, first I'll say thank you for that summary. It was quite lovely. Um, I almost feel like we should be done there. It was perfect, everything you said. Uh, where did it come from? That's it, a long story. I'll try to give the, the highlights. But I had been trying to write this book since 2014, and it initially came to me Shortly after the shooting in Aurora, Colorado, um, at the movie theater, I'd always been a big movie goer and, you know, any shooting that happens anywhere is awful and affects me. I feel like it's, you know, it's wild that we even have to say that these days. It happens so often. But I'd been a teacher when Columbine happened and I never once thought I'm not going to walk into a school again. I never thought, you know, I just went to school and, you know, I was affected by it. It was awful. But... For some reason, the shooting in Aurora, Colorado, it really made me think about going into movie theaters. And I became a little bit paranoid, and it's something that I do often. And so I'd go to the theater, which had always been this safe place, you know, this place of story. It was almost like a church of story for me. It was a place that I went often, and I would start to look over my shoulder and um, look for the exits and wonder who's sitting behind me. That really bothered me because, like I said, uh, the movie theater had always been this safe haven for me. And so I did an event in Ambler, Pennsylvania at a historic movie house. And it was a one book, one town event. The whole town had read my book, The Good Lucker Right Now, and the librarians there had asked me to come. And I walked into this theater. It's called the Ambler Theater. It's actually on the cover of the novel. The movie theater in the book is fiction, but we used the, the picture of the Ambler Theater. And it was just this amazing place that time had forgot. It had been lovingly restored. It was had so much history. And it was just this gorgeous cathedral of a movie house. And I remember being on stage and thinking to myself, you know, I'm talking to this packed house in this gorgeous place. There's part of me that's in engaging with the community. And there's another part of me on stage that kept thinking, am I safe up here? It was just a strange, paranoid thought I was having. And afterwards, I remember thinking, as I was waiting for the car to pick me up, looking at this lit up marquee and this gorgeous thing that it was a voice in my head that said, you have to write a novel about a tragedy at a movie house and the people in the community have to come together to re-sanctify this space. And so 
I went home and I tried to write this book and I failed for seven years. I kept trying and trying and I couldn't get the tone right. And so fast forward to 2018 and I got sober in 2018 and Mm -hmm. I thought that initially, um, you know, the clouds would part and God would come down and anoint me and say, good job. And my life would be amazing after I got sober. But unfortunately, that was not initially the case. You know, my big reward for getting sober was crippling writer's block, which lasted for years. And I would sit down every day for eight hours and I couldn't write a sentence. And I'm somebody who had written previously very fast and very prolific. I would put out a lot of work. It wasn't all good, but I never had the experience of sitting down and being unable to write. And so after having going through that for, I think it was three years, I entered into Jungian analysis and I quickly bonded with my analyst who is an older man in a way that I did not know was possible previously. And I had a lot of father hunger, I think, and I just had never experienced somebody showing up for me fully on a weekly basis, advocating for me and fighting for the best of my soul, basically. And so there was this part of me that felt really, really grateful for this experience, but a darker part of me thought, surely this is going to be taken away from me. Surely this can't be real. And I started having these really paranoid thoughts about my analyst having a heart attack or getting hit by a car or even just abandoning me because I had perhaps said something wrong in analysis. And we talked about it and I worked through it, but I started thinking about how maybe I should write about that paranoia, take it into the creative writing wrestling ring and try to wrestle it down on the page. And and then I thought, well, what if I marry that idea to my movie house idea that I haven't been able to work on for so long? And then once I clicked those two things together, that's when the book just took off. And so after seven years of struggling to write this novel, I sat down and wrote it in six weeks and it just exploded onto the page. It was, you know, writer's block over. It was an amazing experience, but one that I think I had to earn over many, many years. Yeah. It exploded into my life in a very similar way. Ah, nice. It was just like that. Meaning, I picked up the book, I put it down like four or five times. I was like, oh, no, I can't. I'm not even a novel. No, I'm like studying Zen. I'm very serious. And I picked (laughs) this up, and it was just out of control. Incredible. Just incredible. Again, I don't want to spoil it for you, our listener. So I'm going to say as little as possible. But what I will say is this. In the coming months after I finished reading the book, James, my partner... Uh, We're both sober, and we've been together for about nine years. He started listening to This Jungian Life, the podcast, which is a great podcast if you're listening to us and you're interested in Jungian analysis and really who it just applies to all of us. We're all humans here. I started listening with him, and I've gained a little bit of understanding now. And having read your book and then listening to that podcast, I'm starting to understand a little bit about the clues and the little hints and the ways, the turns of phrase and the ways that you put imagery and characters and even lines into the story that point to the wisdom of Jungian analysis. And 
I really appreciate it more since starting to listen to the podcast than I did even while I was reading. They also interviewed me too. Um, so <gasps> there's a two hour podcast episode of them interviewing me about the book too. So for anyone who's interested, that's a great resource as well. Wow. I'm totally going to listen to that now. I wish I had before. I wanted to read a couple of passages for our listener, and perhaps it might delight you to hear your own words being read back to you. We're talking about the brother of the shooter. He walks into the scene pretty early on. And our protagonist is uh, talking about him. His name is Eli. You wrote about this in your recent blog, Tiny Injections of Reality from your analyst, okay? And I think this book speaks to something like that. The next day, after that night in the lawn chair watching over Eli, is when everything really started to fall into place regarding the way forward. But I think I'll save that part for the next letter. I've already written a lot today, and I have actually become quite busy lately, almost like an orchestra conductor. Only I'm not making music, but something even more unexpected. Does that sound unhinged? Ha! I've never felt more hinged in my life. I'm seeing the field clearly, maybe for the first time. My certainty is unprecedented. My sureness transcends the physical realm. So this is when our protagonist comes across the seed of an idea for how to heal the town. Yeah, and I think there's this wonderful kind of um, duality going on. Because I think Lucas is simultaneously inflating because he needs to rise above the pain of the tragedy. And sometimes when we get into an inflated state, our psyches allow us to you know, fly a little higher than we should for a time to protect us. But I also think the flip side of the coin is that Lucas really is tapping into almost these sacred moments, these sacred places where he's possessed, I would say, by love and radical love. And in the aftermath of the tragedy, this young boy who, you know, he's a teenager, he's 18, comes to him and is completely broken. The town has ostracized him because of what his brother did, even though Eli had nothing to do with the shooting. And Lucas decides that he's going to save this boy because he loves him. He cares about him because he's a human being and he sees that he's suffering And I think that that allows Lucas to access, uh, you know, I hesitate to say this, a divine wisdom. You know, he becomes possessed by um, the archetype of love. And so I I think he's simultaneously inflated and also tapped into something that is really powerful at the same time. And, And so we're always walking that line. And I know as a creative person, when you're writing a novel, you have to give yourself over to something greater that kind of possesses you and can seem heady, but can also produce amazing results at the same time. So there's a little bit of that duality. And then I think I wanted to play with that throughout the novel too. You know, is Lucas in full possession of his mind? And if he's not, is that even a bad thing? You know, asking these questions because he is able to do something quite miraculous that helps many people in his community, even while exhibiting behavior that some people might find irrational. And I think that that's something that I'm always playing with in my work. Um, Sometimes by 
limiting ourselves to what seems normal or grounded or the same as everyone else, we divorce ourselves from these higher powers or the ability to really make impact, uh, not just for ourselves, but for others. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Since reading this book, I'm a lot less inclined to judge folks who seem, quote unquote, off or inflated or, you know, in some way overdoing things, according to my limited purview. And I really appreciate that about the book. You know, I think also just the other thing that I was trying to emphasize, too, is Lucas takes a very different approach to, you know, the tragedy. There are some people in his community that want to immediately resort to politics. Um, There's some people that want to go a more traditional mental health route. But Lucas's, the way that his psyche commands him to engage with this situation is, is much different than what his peers are doing. But it also creates a much different result that is beautiful and beneficial to everyone. And I think we live in a time where we're having conversations about power constantly. And those are really important conversations to have. But one of the things in the book that I was really thinking about is that as we elevate these conversations of power, are we relegating conversations of love? And I think that Lucas takes the stance of radical love that is difficult for a lot of people in his community or, you know, sometimes even readers to embrace. To love the brother of someone who commits a massacre is is a difficult thing for some people to do, to see the humanity, to realize that it's easy to look at somebody who does something awful and to other them. It's harder, and this is a very Jungian thing to do, is to see the ugliness in the world and to own it, to say that potential is within all of us. And, you know, that's shadow work. And I think that Lucas is doing a lot of that through the novel. Like he's seeing that the monster isn't out there in other people. The monster is in all of us. And we need to Mm. learn how to love the totality Mm. of our humanity. Mm. I feel that. And like I said, it just gave me a lot more warmth and understanding of other people. I read it just before I started working as a yoga teacher in a men's level two penitentiary, penitentiary here in New Mexico. And I have to say, like with a big pregnant pause, this book actually helped me to understand and drop in very quickly and readily with these humans in a way that I don't think I would have without having read this book. It gives us a sense of, like you said, in looking at the shadow of our society, i.e. the shooter, it gives us a very quick line in on the shadow within ourselves. How can we treat that with more respect? How can we listen? How can we then therefore treat the shadow in others with a lot more respect and bring dignity? Yes. That's what this book gave me. Yeah, and I'm often talking about how at the heart of this novel, there are two brothers, Eli and Jacob. And, you know, one of them literally shoots people and the other brother shoots a movie. And I think the novel is asking the question, why does one brother shoot the movie and why does one brother shoot people? And I think the answer is that a community pays attention to one of the brothers and offers uh, a way out. 
and that doesn't absolve Jacob from the horrible thing that he does. It's, you know, he's responsible for that. And we have to hold people responsible. But I think as we look at the violence that's erupting all over the country, it's easy to point fingers and get angry and, you know, talk about laws. And, you know, all those conversations are important. I think the harder work is saying, this is us, you know, like, this is our community. These people are of us. Why is this happening? Those are much harder conversations to have. But I think, you know, as these unfortunate incidents keep happening over and over, they become imperative. That work is so important for us to do. Yeah, it's everything. When we talk about the kids who are not seen by society, as you just said, it's the crux of the novel, and then it's the crux of our world right now. Yeah. What are your thoughts about this? Like, how do we get the children who aren't seen, seen? Well, you know, I'm not going to claim to have the definitive answer. But one of the things that I've noticed, especially when I was working with young people, is that it is work. You know, when I was in a high school, everybody was very, very busy. Um, and it wasn't that people didn't care. It's just that people were overwhelmed. There were things to do. And it was about, for me, when I was working with young people, it was about slowing down and taking the time to have human interactions. It was about looking people in the eye. It was about being available. It was about opening doors so people could talk. It's about allowing people to express themselves. But I also think, too, and this isn't you know, an original idea by any stretch of the imagination, is that we've, and particularly through social media, we, we just live in a time now where we're just fractured and everything gets pushed you know, to the, the furthest parts of the spectrum and then everybody's just firing insults back and forth. And I think the work really is to see, and this is the Jungian shadow work, those people that make you the most angry are the people that are the most like you. And I see this all the time, particularly politically. My friends who have very strong right-wing opinions and my friends that have very strong left-wing opinions, usually those opinions are based out of fear and they seem very similar to me, even mm -hmm. though they are acting in ways that they're saying that they're the opposite of the other people. But what they're doing by othering whole groups of people and attacking them you know, en masse is very similar. And so I think that that's the work, is realizing that these things that make us uncomfortable, these things that we think that we hate, these things that project out into the world are always manifestations of things that are going on inside of us. And that is hard, scary work to look at the news and things happening in the world and the things that terrify us and then realize that the potential for those things are inside of us as well. It's easy to say, oh, no, that's that person over there. I hate them. Let's get rid of them. Let's throw them in jail or whatever we're going to say. It's harder to say that manifestation of humanity, that spectrum of humanity is also in us. And I think that what is often celebrated, particularly online, is the opposite of that. You know, what gets likes, what gets pushed in the news cycle are the things that either narcissistically reaffirm the things that we already believe are the things that make us feel better about ourselves by putting down other people. Right. If you trend in that direction over a long period of time, things don't get better, they get worse, as we're seeing. So I think it's, it's really coming back to that. And in, in the Jungian work that I do um, is very much about bringing it back to yourself, bringing it back to you know, looking within and doing that hard work. And that is 
you know, it's the work of early sobriety, it's the work of Jungian analysis, it's the work of all spiritual teaching, you know, whatever your tradition is. And I think the world is very hungry for that. I think people, when given the opportunity in the right situations, I think they naturally gravitate toward wanting to better themselves in that way. But I think, again, we live in this fast-paced society where the opportunities for that are being lessened. And I think that that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L-M-N-T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet. Helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, fogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here, no sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single-serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link, drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. You know, when we look at any of these mass shootings, the things that gave you so much uh, anxiety for a time and the very thing that propelled you to write this book and start to bring us together around seeing the humanity of even the criminals, it's very Zen. Mm. It's very much aligned with every single human is a part of this interconnected whole. When you look at Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching of interbeing, all of this brings great comfort, but people have to be willing to actually listen to it. It's not easy. The comfort doesn't come easily. It comes with hard work of sort of dropping off of all of the opinions, dropping off of the assumptions that this person is, with their opinion, going to hurt your life. And allowing yourself to kind of feel a little more vulnerable, but in a very different way than I think we're used to. And we certainly aren't taught this. I'm sad to report that I was watching or listening to a teacher of my son's, uh, shall remain nameless, like going off on political rants in the classroom. Mm. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, really incredible, you know, with their captive audience, none of whom were actually really listening to her, which is why I was getting the report. And what is going on? And how sad that our social media oriented society is now creating 
teachers who are still not being paid enough and not respected enough at all, creating monsters out of teachers. And I don't mean monsters literally, but like a teacher who will sit in her classroom and politically rant endlessly, unrelated to the topic, by the way, this is not a class about politics at all, far from it, and really just go, even though she's actually not being heard. What a sad state of affairs. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, I remember you know, when I came up as a teacher in the 90s and you know, the early 2000s, I, I left teaching in 2004. It was considered really bad form and borderline abusive to bring in politics to the classroom. And, you know, the mantra that I was always taught is that you teach the kids to think, not what to think. And that was something that I held very high, give them the tools to make up their own minds about things. And, but I think it comes back to fear. Why does somebody do that in a classroom today? I, I think it's ultimately because they're afraid and they're looking to feel powerful. They're looking to hide that fear. And so it's a very unfortunate, easy way to you know, lecture children on you know, your political opinions and get them online. And I, I think that that's abusive, no matter which side of the political spectrum you, you mm-hmm. fall under. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a classroom should be a safe place where kids can express their own opinions and make mistakes and, you know, um, think and form their own personalities. But I think that, you know, if you extrapolate that and look at what's going on, we don't really live in a world where we can have nuanced conversations freely in public spaces. It really seems to me, I'm not on social media much anymore, but when I check in, you have your tribes and you know you say the things to your tribe to get the likes. And there's not so much dialogue happening between the tribes that is that seems to be productive. And I think that that is, whenever we're splitting off groups of people, we're really just splitting off parts of ourselves. And I think that that's troubling, and we all see the results of that. But that was one of the things with the book. I felt really, I really wanted to make sure the book was not about politics. And it's not that politics are evil, or, you know, I don't think that there should be politics in the world. I just think that we have enough of that. And so I I wanted to take what I would consider an apolitical view of what happens and concentrate on how people heal. And one of the things in the novel that Lucas struggles with, the protagonist, is that there are people in the community that are really hungry and really feel the best way to deal with this is to politicize it. And they put pressure on Lucas to get involved politically and to become you know, an activist, basically, before he's even mourned the tragedy, before he's even sorted through the psychological trauma. And I think that that's something that you know, particularly someone who struggled with anxiety and depression, you know, myself, and is deeply introverted. I think in this extroverted society where we want quick answers, there can be this tendency for people with good intentions to think that everyone should extrovert their correct opinion immediately or else like some type of tragedy is going to happen. And I think these complicated problems often require us to really ponder and meditate and think. And as someone who is deeply introverted, I'm often shocked at how quickly the sides form and how quickly before, you know, it seems, especially in the wake of a tragedy, it seems like everybody has an opinion immediately. And I get that that makes people feel safe, but I I don't know if that's the 
best way to get to a solution. I don't know. That's my instinct anyway. So I wrote this book and Lucas goes about his mourning and his dealing with this trauma in a very, he's very much in, in this interior life. It's this very introverted withdrawal that creates an opportunity and a quiet space for him to engage with Eli and for him to form these relationships and for him to offer something very different to his community. And I think his community benefits from it beautifully. And it's for everyone. It's for even the people that are pressuring him politically. It's for them too. It's for everybody in the community. There's no division. And I think that that's really what the power of art and story can do. You know, when it's done well, it can bring large groups of people together. And I think we forget this, you know, because we're constantly trying to make things for only certain people all the time. I think we forget that art and music could put us in touch with things that are universal and healing for all different types of people. And so that was one of the things that I really wanted to focus on in, in the novel, to tell this story of someone who took a very different approach. And I, I don't even know that Lucas chose it. I think that he, it's just what his psyche manifested through this experience. But I, I think it's quite beautiful and we could use more of that. A lot more of that. I appreciate so much the description of his sort of receiving of this um, yes. calling rather than, you know, making it up in his head. Like, I don't know that we ever make anything up in our head. Ultimately, we do receive, and I don't really talk like this, but we do receive messages. We do receive information, let's say, from the field, let's say, that, that drives us. Ego is always going to want to take responsibility for everything. You know, that makes us feel safe. That makes us feel in control. But a lot of the work that I've been doing lately in Jungian analysis and, you know, through sobriety is realizing just how little control we actually have. Mm. And that can feel terrifying at first, but it also creates a pathway for us to access things that probably are better at controlling things, you know. Um, I don't know how this novel came to be. You know, people would ask me, how did you write this novel? And my analyst is always saying, I didn't write the novel. You know, he said, you know, you just finally got out of the way and what needed to come through you came through you. And that those seven years of struggling where they were accruing information and, and life experiences needed to happen. Yes, 100%. But part of that was ego was fighting really hard to tell the story that I thought I was supposed to be telling. And, you know, once ego got knocked offline and was defeated and I let go, this novel really felt, to be honest, when I was writing those six weeks, this euphoric six weeks, it felt like channeling. I didn't even feel like I was thinking at all. You know, my wife will tell you that there's all kinds of things in the book that are from my life experiences and are very much me. So I'm not suggesting I didn't have anything to do with it. But it's interesting that for seven years, I use everything in my brain, everything in my ego to try to force something into the world and couldn't do it. And then when I let go, it was very easy. It just kind of slid into the world. And so I think there's a lot of wisdom there, humbling wisdom. I think for our listener, it's really nice to hear that there isn't anything to kind of force out of your brain. <laughs> you know, if you're working on something, if you're working on art or any sort of production or writing, 
you know, like Matthew said, I think part of this is getting out of the way and allowing the work to come through and to really stop denying the parts and the the past, but to really bring it all into the work in a way that might serve somebody else, which is exactly what happened here. Yeah. You know, having the humility to serve and to let go afterwards is the trick. And it can be tough, you know, because I think I've written in all different types of environments. I've written as an unknown. I've written as a successful author. And like, so the life circumstances shift, but it's always coming back to that place of service and humility and getting out of the way, which is easier to do sometimes in life than other times, for sure. Joseph Lee, who's one of the Jungian analysts and co-hosts of this Jungian Life podcast, he wrote something beautiful about the book. Matthew Quick is one of the few fiction writers who, inspired by Jungian insights, makes a solid contribution to the impact of analysis. Like all significant works of art that reflect truths we might have known had we not lost our way, We Are the Light is subtle and intimate compellingly strange and hauntingly familiar, an initiation into the depths of suffering and love. It will not only break your heart, it will break it free. Mm. I had to read that to our listener just in case there was any doubt in your mind that this book will be of some solace, service, inspiration in your life a real beautiful interlude. If you feel like you need to go away, just read this book. (laughs) I swear to God, you will be gone from everything that bothers you right now and uh, sink into something so human and so touching. Anything else that you'd like to share with our listener, uh, Matthew, before we part ways here? No, I think we've covered a lot. I really appreciate the time um, that people took to sit with us and listen to our words. And and thank you for having me on. It's been a wonderful conversation. And um, you lifted up a lot of really beautiful things. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you for being here. And um, congratulations on your fifth year of sobriety. Now. Yeah, almost there. In June, I'll be five. Yeah, June, happy fifth birthday. And Appreciate that. Maybe last thing, is there anything that you'd like to say to our listener who might be struggling to get sober right now? Yeah. Um, number one, you can do it. Number two, reach out. You know, um, reach out for help. Talk to people. Talk to people in your life. I, early on, chose the lone wolf sobriety method where I just, my way of getting sober was I just dropped out of life and started literally running. And I ran obsessively. I just traded drinking for running and it kept me sober, but it was a very lonely existence. And I think in some ways it was, I was punishing myself. I think it was masochistic in retrospect. I didn't feel that way at the time. I just felt I didn't know what else to do. But when I reached out and and got help through my analysts, I felt allied in a way that let me know that I really needed that. You know, everyone's journey is different, whether you do AA or therapy or whatever you choose. I think that matters less than finding people that 
can support you and that you can talk to. The other thing too, is I didn't really talk about my sobriety at first. And, and since I started talking about it publicly and particularly on book tour, I was amazed at how many people would just come up to me and talk to me and like, Oh, I'm also sober. And, and sometimes it's shocked. I mean, you, know, you never know who they're going to be. You know, I remember being in St. Louis and this wonderfully kind woman just walked up and put a gold sobriety coin in my hand. And it was just really beautiful. And there was almost a, um, I didn't realize that I was part of this secret community, you know, and it was, all I had to do was say, hey, I'm sober, and I was in, um, and it was amazing, and in some cases, there are other people that I knew through business, or, you know, maybe there were other writers I met at an event, and just, you know, as soon as, you know, it came time to order drinks, or, you know, someone tried to give me, and say, no thanks, I'm, you know, four and a half years sober, instantly, they just turned, oh, you know, we have a teammate, it was wonderful, um, and so that's really surprised me. And I, I didn't really start getting the benefit of, you know, talking to other people about my sobriety until maybe four years in because I, it was COVID and I just, I lone wolfed it and I, I didn't talk about it. And my first year of analysis, I didn't even tell anyone I was in analysis. My wife was the only person who knew. I think that was a big mistake on my part. You know, again, I managed to stay sober and maybe that's just, the way my psyche needed to do it. Maybe there was some reason why I had to go through it in that way, but I think I, I could have felt more allied, more supported. I could have been part of a community and I, I regret that, you know? And so now it's one of the first things that I usually will say, I, I talk about it all the time now. And I think when I first started talking, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I can help other people. That was my motivation but I didn't realize how much it would help me. And now I think I say because of, wow, I, I want, I'd like to have some friends. I'd like to have some allies. And that even just admitting that has been a part of my recovery process. I would say that's probably the biggest bit of advice. You know, practical things. For me, it was just, particularly early on, it was just don't go places where there was alcohol. You know, that was a, a big thing for me. And you know, social life changed and people faded away and, and that was okay. You know, I was really worried that I wouldn't survive not being around my friends who drank heavily and some of them disappeared and some of them didn't, you know, some of them are still in my life and it was interesting how that happened. So it's possible. I didn't think I would ever be someone who didn't drink on a daily basis and, you know, it's been almost five years, so it, it's definitely possible. And I think it was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. It was definitely one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. So, Well, dude, if who knows if that book would have come through? I mean, Oh, it definitely would not have. Oh. Yeah, 100% we, we are the light would not be in the world if I didn't get sober. Yeah, so. I'm so proud of you. I am so looking forward to reading everything that you've written. And definitely whatever you're working on now, you have your first purchase is waiting right here. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I'm sure we could get you a copy for sure. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your listening, which led to this book. Thank you for your analyst. Thank you for your wife. And thank you for your heart. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you mm. for what you do and for having me and mm. for letting people know about my novel. Thank you. Again soon. More soon. Absolutely.
Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity. The conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.